Good morning, church. It is an absolute honor to get to open up God's Word with you this morning. Uh, I do want to let you know before I get started, uh, Pastor Mark is okay. Uh, if you were in second service last week, uh, you saw that he uh, took a fall at the end of the service. He is okay. Uh, he, is, he is not hurt. Uh, he is away today because he's doing a wedding. Uh, and then later at the end of this month, he and Pam are going to the Mayo Clinic, and we are praying uh, that there will be a full diagnosis discovered and a treatment plan uh, for him. And so that is our prayer. Uh, this, was, this was planned uh, today. This is part of our, our, part of our preaching schedule. Uh, Pastor Mark walked through the first three of our core values uh, in February. Uh, I've got one today, and then Pastor Brett is going to be preaching over uh, the next three uh, throughout the rest of the month. And so uh, if we are an Oreo cookie, I am the sweet, creamy center of that Oreo <laughs> for you this morning. Uh, but I, I do just want to take a, a moment and, and pray over our pastor uh, real quick. So let's, let's do that. God, we, we thank you for Pastor Mark, and we just pray blessing over him. God, would you just fill him with your peace and comfort? I uh, pray that you would give him rest. God, we do pray for, uh, for answers, for, um, for full understanding of, of what's happening in his body, and we pray that, uh, that there would be a treatment plan. God, we know that you're the healer, and so we, we ask for healing. God, that you would heal his body and you would take this away from him. But God, we, we trust you. We know that you're in control, and we're so grateful for a pastor who models what it looks like to live in the midst of adversity, and to continue to chase after you and love you with all his heart. Um, and so we just pray blessing on he and Pam today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Ah, well, we have been walking through a series called The Heartbeat of Central, and, and we've been going through our core values. And um, we've talked about a scripture foundation. We've talked about embracing your mission field. And last week, we talked about fighting for the hearts of the next generation. And these core values are really define who we are as a church and in some cases define who we want to be as God continues to refine us and shape us. And so today we're going to talk about the value of we are better together. And the, the term better together is not just a a term that we use here at Central. It's used all over the place. It's not just a church term. It's used in a lot of strategies and marketing campaigns. I think Starbucks is using it right now in a social media campaign. And in the general sense, I think we all have a similar idea of what we mean by we're better together, right? When when we're in a united group, we can accomplish more than we can as individuals, or we can improve and grow, maybe be more successful if we're surrounded by like-minded people. But when someone says that we're better together, what does it really mean to be better? Right? Better is a relative term. It's, it's pretty subjective. If I were to ask this room full of people, Where's the best place to go get tacos for lunch this afternoon? There would be 20 plus answers of which restaurant is better. 
right? So what do we mean by better? Better at what? Better how? And then who exactly should we be together with? Do we need to be together with everybody? Does being together with just anyone actually make us better? Well, at Central, we have pretty specific answers for these questions, and I think that uh, anyone who uses this phrase probably has their answers as well. But I think that's where the, the difference starts to come. When you dig in, we actually mean different things by the terms better and together. You know, when a, a health and fitness company like Camp Gladiator uses the phrase, we're better together, well, they mean that you're going to be more successful at reaching your fitness goals when you have a trainer who knows you and you're surrounded by supportive community who have similar goals in mind with their health. And although here at the church we do want you to be physically healthy, that's not what we mean when we say that we're better together. And so we're going to take a, a look at a passage in the New Testament to get a clearer understanding of what we mean by the phrase, better together, and, and we're going to ask ourselves two questions and hopefully come up with some answers for them. And those questions are, how are we better, and who should we be together with? And so before we open up God's Word, I, I just want to pray. I want to ask for the Holy Spirit to give us revelation and understanding as we look at His Word. So would you pray with me? God, we, we know that you know every single person in this room, and you know exactly what they're going through. You know what each person needs to hear, and so I pray that by your Spirit, you would speak to each one through your Word. God, I pray in, in this moment that you would increase and that I would decrease so that the name of Jesus would be highly exalted. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the text that we're going to be looking at this morning is Mark chapter 2. And if you're new to the Bible, the book of Mark is the second book of the New Testament. It's one of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each of the four Gospels are just the narrative story of Jesus. And oftentimes, like in today's reading, we'll see the same events covered in multiple Gospel accounts. And so... If you're curious, today's story can also be found in Matthew 9 and Luke 5. And so we find ourselves at this point in the story in the early part of Jesus' ministry. He started to travel around teaching and performing miracles and calling disciples to follow him. And when we pick up the story, Jesus has returned home and the word has start, started to get out that the miracle worker is back home. So let's read verse 1. And when he, meaning Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. So we'll stop there. This, this kind of sets our scene. So Jesus is home. Word gets out, and pretty quickly the house is full of people. Now, I, I don't know for sure, but we can probably guess what the motives are of the people that are filling the house, right? They've, they've heard 
of what Jesus is capable of. So likely many are coming for healing, or some are just coming to see the show. All right, they want to see what Jesus is capable of. They want to see it for themselves. But that's not what Jesus gives them. Look at verse 2. It says, he was preaching the word to them. In this context, the word means that he was teaching the message of salvation. He was preaching the gospel. He knew what they expected to see and what they wanted to see, but he also knew what they actually needed. And I'm guessing that, that there were many in the crowd that were bringing their needs to Jesus. They had heard the stories and Many people were bringing needs before Jesus that they hoped that he would fix. And we still bring our needs to Jesus today. And we should. Scripture tells us to. First Peter tells us to cast our anxieties on him because he cares for us. So we should bring our needs before Jesus. But I, I promise you, whatever your need is today, it is secondary at best to a right relationship with God. Jesus had his priorities straight. He didn't just want them to come for the healing. He wanted them to know the healer. The best possible thing for those people was not that they were freed from their sickness that day. It was that they be freed from their sin and its punishment forever. Jesus knows what's best for us, and what's best for us is him. So we pick up in verse 3. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. So the, the type of house that we're talking about here is probably a small structure with a flat roof. And it's got wooden beams or branches uh, spread across, and it's covered up with thatch and earth and clay. And these guys are carrying their friend, and uh, they see that there's, there's no room for them to get inside. But this house likely had an outdoor stairway leading up to the roof. We all love a good rooftop view. They did as well, and so they brought their friend up there to, to dig a hole and hopefully lower him down before Jesus. And so they, Jesus watches this happen, right? And it's not, it's not like this is an easy thing to do. It's not going to move quickly. Right? This wasn't a, a modern roof designed with this purpose in mind. They're not popping out a ceiling tile and dropping him in, Mission Impossible style, into the room. That's not what's happening. This is hard work. Probably didn't bring the right tools to accomplish this task. And so these guys do all this work to get their friend to Jesus, and what is Jesus' response? Son, your sins are forgiven. I don't think that's what they were expecting. <laughs> they, they got him there, and they're, they're probably thinking, there's two options here, right? Jesus is either going to heal their friend or he's going to kick him out. Jesus just goes none of the above and says, son, your sins are forgiven. And I wonder if this paralyzed man even realizes the weight of what's been done for him. Is he thinking that he's disappointed? 
Like, Jesus, I, I appreciate the forgiveness, but I was actually just looking for the healing. I don't know what was going on in this guy's head, but I'm so thankful that we serve a God who knows exactly what we need, and he's patient with us when we don't realize it ourselves. Verse 6 says, Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. So Jesus does a couple of things here to prove to them that he is who he says he is. He tells the man that his sins are forgiven and they start to question him. But they're not questioning out loud, they're questioning in their thoughts, in their hearts. And so Jesus responds to them. Even though they haven't said this out loud, he responds to their questioning and says, which is easier, to forgive sins or to heal? This is a funny question because they're really the same, right? They're impossible for man and really easy for God. But the scribes would have thought, well, it's probably easier to say that I forgive the man because there's no way to prove that that's been done. If you say that you healed him, well, it would be pretty easy to find out whether or not you did that or not. So Jesus tells the man, get up and walk. Take your mat and go home. Jesus did the miracle they could see so that they would know the validity of the miracle they couldn't see. He was who he said that he was. And he still is today. He is our greatest treasure. He is the one we're seeking after. No matter what our needs may be, he is still the best thing. And he is worth trusting. He is worth following. So there are many things that we can learn from this passage today. But since our topic is better together, I'm going to go ahead and focus on those. That would make sense. We're going to look at what it means to be better together. And we're going to use the events of this story as our framework. And so I want to go back to the questions that I asked at the beginning and put them in context of this church. So it's central when we say, We're better together. How are we better? And who should we be together with? How are we better in community with others here at this church? Well, it starts with this. We get closer to Jesus. We're we're better when we get closer to Jesus. The first step for this paralyzed man, he just knew he needed to get closer to Jesus. He didn't know what was going to happen when he got there. He didn't know how he was going to get there. He just knew that's how he was going to get better, and that's the same for us today. However you need to be better, whatever hole you have in your heart, it starts by getting closer to Jesus. So how do we get closer to Jesus? How do we accomplish this? 
The answer is spiritual disciplines. Maybe you've heard it, spiritual practices. Spiritual disciplines are the intentional things that we do that form us more into the image of Christ. They're the things that take our focus off of ourselves and put them on to God. They're the things that train our body, soul, and mind for spiritual growth in the life that God has called us to live. And so what are those things? Well, depending on who you ask, there's a bunch of different things, but I made a list here that we can go over today. Bible reading, Bible study, Bible memorization, prayer, worship, thanksgiving, fellowship, generosity, fasting, confession, rest and solitude, celebration. These are things that we put intentionally into the rhythms of our lives so that we can live the way that Jesus lived. It's kind of like a, an athlete training for the Olympics, right? They're going to put specific uh, disciplines into the rhythms of their lives so they can get better prepared physically and mentally for the things that they want to accomplish. And that includes putting the right things in their body, keeping the right things out of their body, practice through repetition, strengthening specific muscles, Rest and surrounding themselves with the right people. And I believe it's the same for us in our spiritual disciplines. We've got to put the right things in our minds, and we've got to keep the wrong things out. We've got to learn to rest. We've got to practice some things through repetition, and we've got to surround ourselves with the right people. And now, this is going to look different for everybody, right? There's no comparison here. This isn't a competition with our spiritual disciplines. God has made us uniquely to connect with him in different ways. So some of these things are going to come more naturally to you than others. But don't ignore the things that are hard. That may be a way that God is pushing you so that you can grow. It's not about you being closer to Jesus than someone else. It's about you being closer to Jesus now than you were before. And so, what happens when we get closer to Jesus? Well, if we look at our story, it tells us that we're able to find forgiveness and healing. When we get closer to Jesus, we're able to find forgiveness and healing. Remember Jesus' priorities. Look at verse 5. It says, And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. The man came for physical healing, but Jesus said what you really need is forgiveness. His priority was the eternal change, not the temporary fix. And that is still his priority today. If you don't know Jesus today, I, I invite you to get closer to him. Read his word. Talk with him in prayer. You know a couple years after the events of this story, he would willingly give up his life and die on a cross, raise himself up from the dead so that he could offer forgiveness to you and me and all of mankind. All we have to do is surrender our lives to him. Have faith that he is who he says he is and give him 
control of our lives. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, son, your sins are forgiven, and that's the same thing that he offers every person on this planet. He is trustworthy. He is worth it. So when we get closer to Jesus, we're able to find forgiveness, and we're also able to find healing. After he told the man to to get up and walk, he did. He got up and, and he walked away and he took his mat home. For this particular man in this particular situation, he received the physical healing that he was looking for. But this is not a prosperity gospel health and wealth sermon. I'm not saying that if you come to Jesus that he's going to heal your disease, that he's going to restore your relationships or make you successful or take away all the stress from your life. Do I believe he's able? Yes. Yes, I do. I believe the same miracle-working God of the Bible is the same God that we serve today. And as followers of Jesus, we should be on our knees in prayer asking for his intervention in our lives and in our world. But friends, as hard as it is, we have to let God define what healing looks like so that he gets the glory for it. I, I look around this room and I know, I know a lot of the suffering. I know a lot of what, what you're going through. And there's a lot that I don't know. And I would love for God to come and take all of it away. But we don't fix our eyes on Jesus or on the temporary things of this world. We fix our eyes on the faithful God who knows every detail of what we're going through and he never leaves our side. We can trust him in all things and in every circumstance. Paul says in Philippians, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And this verse is not a motivational speech to get you to try harder or win a game. It's actually the realization that true healing and contentment comes when we fully surrender our lives to Jesus. In John 10, Jesus says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. So when we get closer to Jesus, we're able to find true healing and abundant life. So when we say, that's central that we're better together, what does it mean to be better? It means that we're getting closer to Jesus, finding forgiveness and healing and abundant life. The second question then is, who should we be together with? And the simple answer is friends who are gonna take you to Jesus. I don't know if you're sensing the theme, uh, but the theme is Jesus. He is the focus. He is the point. He's why we gather. He is who we worship. He is our rock, our joy, our hope. And he is more than enough to satisfy every need. So who should you be in community with? Friends who are going to take you to Jesus. And that's exactly what we see in our story. These four guys want the best for their friends, so they know they got to get them to Jesus. 
And they carry him through the city, fight their way through the crowds, overcome obstacles and do whatever it takes to make sure that he gets there. Those are the kinds of people we need to be in community with. Those are the kind of God-honoring, life-changing friendships that actually make us better. The kind of people that pray for us constantly, that laugh with us, that meet our needs, that call out sin, and sit quietly together in grief. And so I want to define these friendships a little bit more. And I may step on some toes here, but that's okay. Your closest relationships should be with other committed Christians in the church. Your closest relationships should be with other committed Christians in the church. Why is that? 2 Corinthians 6.14 tells us, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with dark. But wait, aren't we supposed to love everybody? Jesus ate with sinners. Jesus hung out with sinners. What about the Great Commission? We're supposed to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. Yes. Yes. All of those things are true. But none of those things are describing your closest relationships. None of those things are describing the relationships that you allow to speak into your life and influence your thoughts. If your closest friendship is with somebody who isn't a follower of Jesus, at some point, you're going to have to cap your intimacy with that person. Or you're going to have to cap your int intimacy with God when you're around that person. One way I've heard it says is you'll end up walking like who you walk with. And so... Young people, single people in the room, evangelizing is a bad plan. It's a bad plan. Don't start what could be the most intimate relationship in your life with someone who doesn't have the same foundation, values, and core beliefs as you. I know, I know that you think you're going to date them and win them over to Christ, and that would be great. But history shows us that that's not what happens. It's much more likely that you begin to compromise your beliefs and drift away from your faith. And those of you in the business world, who are your primary partners? Who are the people you're aligning yourself with? Who are the people that you give influence in your business? Church, who are your closest friends? How do they influence you? Are they the kind of friends who are taking you to Jesus? Pastor Mark often uses the illustration of the charcoal in the grill. And as the coals are together, they burn and they create heat and they're able to be used for their purpose. But if the coal is separated from the group, it grows cold. And it's not able to be used for its purpose anymore. Eugene Peterson says it this way. Jeff, you can throw that quote up there. There can be no maturity in the spiritual life, no obedience in following Jesus, no wholeness in the Christian life apart from an immersion in and embrace of community. 
I am not myself by myself. You see, we've become the people that God created us to be through the sharpening and refining that comes with community. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25 says this, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The writer of Hebrews here is asking us to stay. To stay in community, stay in the church. Some of you will say, well, that group didn't work for me. Or that group of people didn't welcome me. Okay. I get it. Try another one. Try another one. Try another church. Listen, Central, I love this church. I love this place. You guys and the people that have been here for the last 30 years are the best thing that's happened to me and my family. I love this church, and I I pray that every person who walks in these doors can find the same thing that I've found, but I'm not naive enough to think that every person in Round Rock is going to find their best fit here. So don't give up on the church because of a bad situation or a bad experience. And I know some of you have been wounded badly by people in the church, maybe even leadership. And to you, I say, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. It's not okay. It's not okay. But listen, that, that was a person who failed you. It wasn't Jesus. Jesus didn't fail you there. That's a human being. We are flawed. We mess up, all of us. Don't give up on Jesus. Don't give up on his church. Don't give up on community. It makes us better. The Bible actually gives us a lot of guidance on how we should act towards each other in community. Did you know there are 59 one another statements in the New Testament? that describe how we should act toward each other? I'm not gonna read them all right now. <laughs> but I do, wanna, I do wanna give you just a quick sampling. Uh, we should serve one another. We should encourage one another. We should care for one another. We should forgive one another. We should submit to one another. And we should commit to one another. We should be patient with one another. We should confess to one another. We should instruct one another. And we should be humble toward one another. We are a prideful people. And pride divides us. It's not very hard to divide us anymore. We've become so quick to passionately defend our opinions at the expense of our relationships with our brothers and sisters. I heard this a couple weeks ago and I really liked it. When we come together boasting our strengths, that breeds competition. But when we come together sharing our weaknesses, that breeds community. We have so much more in common in our weaknesses. (laughs) 
And when we live in community, lost people get found. And found people grow. Lonely people find family. And hurting people find healing. Bored people find purpose. And cities find hope. And so, if you aren't in a group that's central, this is your invitation into community. With all the mess that it comes with, this is your invitation into it. So Jeff, you can put that QR code up. And if you want to scan this code and fill out the form, we'll find a group for you. If you want to email me or call the church office or take me out to lunch, Maybe I'll find a better group for you. (laughs) We have a group right now that isn't as great as it should be because you're not part of it yet. And so I invite you in. So when we say at Central that we're better together, how are we better? We're better because together we're getting closer to Jesus, finding forgiveness, healing, and abundant life in him. And who should we be together with? friends in the church that are committed to taking us to Jesus. 